0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Matt Taibbi. John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, meaning sometimes the sound quality is less than optimum. Well, today I'm tremendously excited to be joined by Matt Taibbi. Matt is a highly sought after journalist and commentator in the US and beyond. His background is extraordinarily diverse. He's been a professional athlete, a private investigator, a journalist and a best-selling author. He's lived in the Soviet Union as a reporter as well as, as Pakistan and Russia as a professional baseballer and Mongolia as a professional basketballer. As a full-time screenwriter in the US, he's been published in a lot of places, including for a long time, Rolling Stone. He's written many books, The most recent being with a really interesting title that says a lot, Hate Inc. Why today's media makes us despise one another, a theme we've often talked about uh, in these podcast series. But as well as co-hosting his own podcast, he's been a guest on some of the most popular shows in America, including the Joe Rogan Experience. Matt, it really is just terrific to have you. You're in New Jersey and I'm in rural New South Wales, Australia.
1: Yes, and th- thank you. I'm so glad to be joining you. It's, uh, it, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, thank you. Before we come to the issue of journalism and its place in our increasingly fractured society, can I just ask you, what drew a man of your extraordinary range of talents and interests into journalism, almost, it seems to me, as a vocation? What got you interested? What got you motivated in this field of activity?
1: Um, it's it was sort of the family business. My father was a television reporter. Uh, he started off as a newspaper reporter when he was um, 18 years old. He had me when he was 20, and uh, so I grew up around newsrooms my entire life. Um, I actually never wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a, a novelist. I wanted to be a, um, a comic novelist, actually. Uh, but it turned out I don't I don't really have a talent for fiction. So when I graduated. Uh, from the university, uh, I fell back on the family business, which was, which was one thing that I knew how to do. Uh, and I started off in the former Soviet Union, sort of stringing for wire services and eventually became a feature writer. How,
0: how old were you, can I ask, when you went to the Soviet Union? And, and what, what was it like? Give us a feel for what it was like at that time. It was a pretty tumultuous time in US-Russia relationships and in Russia itself.
1: It was. It was. Uh, I went. I first went there in 1989. I was 19 years old uh, as a student. Uh, I went to Russia because I was a big fan of Russian books as a kid. Uh, my favorite writer was Nikolai Gogol, uh, who was a a great Russian comic novelist, and I was myself kind of a depressive young uh, person at the time and when I first went to the Soviet Union it was such a contrast with the United States everybody was depressed and I I felt like I fed in um, but I had a I had a connection with the the culture and the people very early on the the country was in a tremendous state of upheaval however and um, from the moment the Soviet Union collapsed uh, for the next 10 or 11 years of when I stayed in country uh, it was it was basically a a permanent state of turmoil and uh, and and corruption uh, that really hasn't cleaned up that much uh, in the interim.
0: No, it's a, it's extraordinary how things have unfolded because because the collapse of the Berlin Wall and all the rest of it, uh, you know, uh, democracy looked like it had won out and uh, communism had collapsed, and just a few short years on, we find that uh, that's not the case at all. But we'll come back to those things. Um, if we can go back to the basics, though, historically the media, I think, has and still does see itself as absolutely critically important, uh, and we're generally thought of it as vital for the proper working of democracy. Given the turmoil in the media and now the strip between or the the, the gap between mainstream media uh, and the sort of things that we're doing, how do you see the role of the media in in, in today's? Uh, Fractured democracies going forward.
1: Well, I think in my father's era and the '60s and '70s, uh, journalism for a long time in America was more of a, a, a trade than a profession. It was not uncommon for journalists to be the sons and daughters of, uh, you know, plumbers and electricians. It was a, it was, it was a working class. Uh, or to middle-class vocation. People came up through the business as as paper boys or paper kids uh, or in the printers. Uh, And in my lifetime, that significantly changed and it became uh, much more of an upper-class vocation where uh, rich kids who went to the Ivy League schools uh, went into journalism, I think in large part because of movies like All the President's Men that sort of cast journalism as a sexy profession. And as a result, I think the 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 consequence of that is that journalists used to be sort of on the side of ordinary people. They were seen as kind of a check on power. Now, culturally, journalists have evolved to being sort of defenders of uh, the establishment and the status quo which is one of the reasons why I think there's been such a kind of catastrophic loss of trust in the business uh, in this country anyway. Uh, there's there's a real divide between kind of ordinary people and the press that uh, didn't exist when I when I went into the business the first time.
0: Yes, this breakdown of trust is a very big issue. Uh, we actually have, uh, as does your northern neighbour, Canada, or as does uh, the UK, uh, we have a publicly funded broadcaster, the ABC, Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. And it, uh, uh, in a recent survey, it was discovered that only green voters consistently regard it as balanced. And indeed, over and above that, uh, if it were optional, if you paid a subscription for the ABC, a very limited number of Australians, about one in five, would be prepared to pay for it. That's a dramatic shift. And perhaps it's reflecting what you're talking about. There's sort of almost this new elitism this tendency for them people in the media to to want to campaign rather than to inform and people see through that and it often amazes me that i mean you know people are in the in the media are not more aware that when they're being biased when they're not being professional people pick it up very quickly it seems yeah
1: to Absolutely. And we have statistics that are very similar to what you're talking about. There was a Gallup poll last uh, September that showed that only 9% of Americans say they have uh, high levels of confidence in the news media. Uh, the only 31% additional uh, of the additional population has some level of confidence. So you're talking about a 60% no confidence rate in the media right now. And the the what you're talking about, that sort of disconnect between journalists and the population. I mean, I was definitely aware of it. I remember I covered the presidential election in 2016, and Donald Trump, during the during his speeches, he would point to us, he would point to the press section, and he would say, you know, look at those bloodsuckers. They're not on your side. I'm on your side. They're, you know, they're lying to you. And I could see the, the, the way the crowds were looking at us differently than they used to. Uh, I was very alarmed that my colleagues' didn't take it seriously. I, I, I knew right away that was a serious problem. And I, I think it's something that uh, really more of the old timers in our business are worried about, whereas the uh, there's a generation coming up that doesn't know that it's ever been different.
0: Well, that's very concerning when we wash corporate history out. And one of the things that I think is happening in Australia now is that our memories are becoming very short. Now, I noticed Frank Ferruti from the UK has written a very interesting book called Boundaries. I'm hoping to talk to him about it. He says that one of the problems is that um, there's a very determined push as part of this sort of elite belief that they know better to delegitimize the past so that young people have little understanding of what's really happened and are easily persuaded by the notion that somehow they are part of an illegitimate culture, one that is inferior, that's done the wrong thing. And of course, that means that they're not willing to defend it in particular because they don't understand it.
1: Yeah, so there, there's been a major shift in, in how, how uh, journalists uh, uh, approach the whole idea of talking to their audiences. There was a, a, a very influential article in 2016 here in the New York Times uh, called Trump is Testing the Norms of Objectivity in Journalism. And the the author, the, the columnist, essentially said that um, journalists not 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 only have to worry about being true but they have to be worry about being true to history's judgment and what this really meant was that we we no longer can trust the audience to just sort things out on their own we can't just give them the information that's and worry about being accurate and hope that they'll make sense of it uh we now have to give them information and try to steer them in the correct direction because the implication is we don't trust them to make that decision anymore to me that that speaks to a a total breakdown in the relationship because the press has always been about um communicating with with the public and saying look here's the compact. We're going to give you all the information. We're going to tell you what's true. We're going to be as dedicated to that job as we can. And then we're going to trust you to do the responsible thing with this information. Now we're saying we don't trust them anymore. And I think they're reciprocating by tuning us out.
0: Yeah. Well, that must have been an interesting campaign circuit to have been on in 2016. Do you feel that in part, Trump was not so much the cause of the problem, but the result of this sort of Disaffection, and he he tapped into it very successfully. That therefore there should have been major lessons for the media.
1: Oh, absolutely. He, this was this was a pre-existing thing that, that started long before Trump came on the scene. He just very opportunistically took advantage of this drift away um, from the news media. I mean, I, I started to see this this lack of trust uh, happening. Sort of right after the Iraq war, I think the WMD episode was very, very damaging uh, in the United States. People started to realize that essentially there were different camps in the news media and that they were really playing for profit, not worrying as much about accuracy as they had in the past. And Trump just took advantage of all those frustrations and he, he turned it into a class issue. He cast uh, journalists as the elitists, um, which helped him solve his own accessibility problem. With uh, with people, given that he was a billionaire, and I, I thought it was a brilliant strategy. I mean, I didn't I didn't love it personally because obviously it reflected badly on on the business. But it w- it was smart, uh, it was effective, and it's it's ongoing. I mean, I think the, the there's still a lack of uh, willingness in the business to to reckon with what's happened, and they haven't changed their behavior. If anything, they've kind of doubled down. I would say.
0: Yeah, you know, I must say, as I sit here in Australia, I, I can't help wondering whether there's not a very different level of scrutiny of the current president uh, compared to the past. And that in itself runs the risk of simply exacerbating those divisions, even that contempt across the political divide in America. They seem to be two standards, if I can be so rude as to suggest that that's the way it looks.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, we've had you know, we had a situation, the Washington Post had this column where they were fact checking every one of Donald Trump's statements. And they, I think they cataloged something like 30,000 misstatements over the course of Four years, they were continually doubling the amount of comments they were doing year after year, and then they just abandoned the column a couple of couple of weeks ago, uh, saying that they're not going to do it anymore for Biden. Which, on the one hand, I, I, I sort of understand because Trump was a unique case that spurred the the column to begin with, but to mass audiences that doesn't make any sense at all. It looks like a plain double standard. And then when you know th- there are there are issues like the border crisis uh with mexico where you have very very similar things happening to what happened under trump but the the news media is uh, purposely avoiding words like crisis we had a report out that the that politico uh, that their staff was told not to use that word um and you know again again the public sees right through this stuff they, they can see that it's a very similar story but the language is just different um and biden you know uh, not making a comment on his performance, but he was immediately christened uh, F.D. the Second Coming of F.D.R. in the United States. Uh, just a couple of months into the job, which is just a very different way of approaching, um, you know, coverage.
0: To, to stand back for a moment, over the last twelve months, it's been, you know, particularly here where we are in Australia, because we're very, very aware of the tensions to the north, They're very much in our minds, and the prospect of, of, of conflict over Taiwan in particular. Um, so you add that as a sort of uh, great black cloud hanging over the other issues of the last 12 months. If I could ask you generally, I mean, you think of it, you've had the impeachment trials over the last 12 months, you've had the relentless media onslaught for and against Trump, uh, you had then the Black Lives Matter protests, the November elections, the January 6th storming of Capitol Hill. While all that was going on, of course, there was the, you know the horrors of COVID, what general observations would you make about the the way in which the American media shed light uh, on uh, on on what was happening and reflected back to the people reliable information with with which they could form inform uh, you know create informed an informed view of what was happening?
1: Yeah, I think every single one of the issues that you just brought up, including Covid, I think what distinguishes all of them is that, They've been presented to the public as essentially binary issues where there's one side and another side. So, if you turn on Fox News, you're going to get one version of the story. And if you turn on CNN or MSNBC, you're going to get another version of the story. It's more or less predetermined. And they do that with every issue, whether it's a partisan issue or not. I think what was extraordinary about the way we covered COVID is we managed somehow to make even that into a partisan issue. So, when it first broke, uh, there was a stress on any factoid that made the the crisis look worse. That tended to be um, highlighted in the kind of anti-Trump media. And then there was anything that suggested that there might be a cure or relief or progress. That was highlighted in in the Fox media. Um, A great example of this was the debate over hydroxychloroquine, which was just a medicine. It doesn't have any political value one way or the other. But just because Trump said something positive about it once. Anything that was negative about hydroxychloroquine, that appeared in the New York Times, CNN, and then uh, the opposite thing happened in, in Fox, which is, uh, I, again, I, I don't think it's the right way to cover the news. The journalists should be taking in all sides of the issues, and usually they're not binary. Usually they're, they're multi-shaded, and they have many gradations of, of different uh, realities involved, and I think you're, you're presenting a false face to the public if you only show them two sides of every of every story
0: see, the interesting thing here, uh, Matt, is that the position you're taking is one of defending professionalism. And you're actually standing against this bipartisanship, this partisanship that's entered the media now where in this country, uh, you know, probably the most senior journalist said to me on one of these talks recently that you've actually got to do a sort of a, a, a political analysis of each of the media sources in the country and then try and pick two or three of them. Uh, so you can keep yourself informed and form a middle ground. And and that's the great tragedy of it. What you're really arguing for is a return to simple professionalism, it seems to me.
1: Yeah, and what, what you're describing, it's interesting. When I lived in, in Russia in the 90s and during the Yeltsin years, uh, each one of the newspapers was, sent, was essentially owned by uh, an oligarchical business figure or a, a mafia-linked figure. And they all had their own takes on the news. And in the morning, when you wanted to figure out what happened in the world, you had to kind of sift out, well, this person wants to say this, and that person wants to say that. Somewhere in the middle of all that is reality, but you you would never see it all presented in one place. Uh, Unfortunately, that's kind of how we have to do things in America now. And I'm I'm guessing that you're saying the same thing in Australia, too. You have to kind of pick and choose the factoids that you see uh, in the different media outlets. And from that construct... Um, you know, a sort of basic framework of what's actually happening. And I, I, I again, I just don't think that's our our role. I think when we're doing the job correctly, um, you know j- journalism is is kind of separate from politics. We're not aligned with any one particular party, and we have to be that. We have to be perceived as that also uh, in order to be believed and trusted and seen as a check on power. If we're seen as being, you know, align with the Democrats or the Republicans. Then, what good are we, right? I mean, I think that's the problem. As far as audiences are concerned, they might as well just read a press release from the DNC or the RNC, the Republican and Democratic committees. You know, why why bother going to a news outlet if they're going to, if they're going to do that? So, yeah, you're right. It it is it is basically. I, I'm saying I think we need, in order to get our credibility back, we have to go back to the kind of the basic professional uh, attitude towards the job.
0: To tease this out a little bit, you've spoken about what you call a schism in journalism between those who are seeing journalism as a as a fact-finding project, largely detached from ideology on the one hand, and a new school, your words again, which sees its project in terms of, interesting term you've used here, moral clarity. What, what do you mean by this term, moral clarity, and, and how much of a problem has it become? It ought to be a good thing, but I think you're describing something troubling
1: so this is a this is a term that was um, that was used by a, a prominent journalist in this country, Wesley Lowry, who was arguing that the old school detached uh, what they call the objective style of journalism, that kind of neutral third person tone that the anchorman used to read uh, on the air that was separate from politics, that uh, that view from what, what he called the view from nowhere uh, form of journalism was no longer legitimate and that in order to properly do the job, we had to have "Quote unquote moral clarity," which meant being uh, open with the with audiences about where we stand, uh, where our biases are, um, what our political beliefs are, and acting accordingly. Now, to some degree, I agree. I agree with him. Like I, I'm a big fan of journalists like um, Tom Wolf and Hunter Thompson. Uh, there's a famous story about Thompson on the campaign trail that when he came home. Uh, from covering the campaigns, he was the only reporter who didn't have to tell uh, his or her spouse what it was really like out there because uh, you know they'd already read his articles and they knew what he actually thought. Um, I think that's very valuable. I think you have to it's it's important to be honest with your um, w- with your readers about what you think uh, sometimes, in some formats. the The problem is that you can't just throw your lot in with one, Party or another. Uh, you never really know who the villain in any story is going to be. Sometimes the facts cut differently than you expect. Uh, technically, when we're doing this job, we have to clear our minds each time we do an assignment and assume, uh, you know, relearn all the facts from zero as we cover each story, because again, you just never know how things are going to break. With that kind of moral clarity approach, you're you're picking ahead of time what your stance on things is going to be, and I I, I think that's that boxes you in. It makes it difficult to cover. Just to quickly with the example of Donald Trump, you can be very much against Donald Trump. You may not like him very much, but it's very important to examine why people voted for him, right? So you have to actually go go in there and say, well, that people were responding to this and that and this, and he said this thing that might have been true or in the ballpark of true, if you don't do that, if you cover those things up because you're trying to push an anti-Trump line, you're deceiving your audience. You're not telling them the truth. And I, I just don't think that works.
0: Well, I would suggest the irony of it is that it makes the very problem you say you are trying to overcome, exactly uh, call it Trumpism, you actually make it worse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you It's self-defeating. You're making the very problem that you are describing as catastrophic more catastrophic. If I can use some sloppy language.
1: Absolutely. And you're validating every criticism that he makes. You know, if if Trump gets up there and, you know, by the middle of his presidency, uh, a a bulk of his speeches were about how they're lying to you, you know, they're elitists, they're all in it together, the, you know, CNN and, and the, the, the. The collapsing New York Times, they're they're all, you know, he he would describe this as sort of a conspiratorial hoven against against Trump and against the ordinary person. And so when we get up there and we we misstate things, we present things in a slanted way, it just confirms all those criticisms and makes it very, very difficult to reach people. I I think, you know, when you have some a figure like Trump, you actually have to be bend over backwards to avoid having that happen. Um, It's challenging, but I think it's really necessary.
0: To what extent are your insights or have your insights been uh, built up and accelerated by your, the time you spent in Russia as a young man? Because, you know, as, as, as we look on that, that was an age when ideology was incredibly powerful. Propaganda and the use of the media you've touched on that uh, was uh, extraordinarily prevalent. And yet the whole thing collapsed because in the end, no one believed it.
1: Right. Yeah, no I think it was very for me it was very influential. There were um there were a lot of analogs to what happened in the 90s to things that subsequently happened in the United States. Uh the the financial crisis in 2008 which I also covered had a lot in common with a lot of Russian corruption schemes and then the rise of Putin um He's obviously almost an exactly opposite character to Trump, uh, personality-wise. He's he's a self-made uh, figure. You know, Trump was the the scion of inherited wealth, uh, but Putin was popular in Russia for some of the same reasons that Trump was uh, achieved popularity in the United States. The the performance of the Elsner administration was terrible. There was widespread, widespread economic distress in the country. Uh, people had um, suffered an incredible loss of trust in institutions generally, uh, not just the government, but in all institutions. Um, and Trump capitalized on some of the same things. He he went after every institution in America. You know, from NATO to the news media. I guess NATO is not an American institution, but. the uh, but aligned with the, with the United States, he went after all of them and he basically said, you know, there's this rot in our society. They're ignoring you. That was very similar to what happened in Russia in the 90s. The people, they had negative feelings about what was going on politically in in, Rus- in Russia, but they also were in such distress that they were willing to try anything. And that was very similar. So I think that that had a lot of influence on in my thinking.
0: Can I just ask you, uh, where do you think the role of academia in all of this has been? The universities, they've become very controversial in Australia. There's enormous, uh, uh, I think, public angst actually over the performance of, of, of our universities and uh, the way in which they have contributed to what might be described as a, as, as a distrust, even a loathing of our, of our own cultural underpinnings, which has left people uncertain of their own values and beliefs.
1: Yeah, I think we're going through exactly the same thing here in the United States. And, and there's a very close correlation between what's going on in academia and what's happened in the news media. I think it just hit the news media a little later. Um, we had we had a series of episodes last summer where um, journalists were chased out of their newsrooms for having beliefs that were different from other people in the news, which is similar to some of those Sort of cancellation episodes you hear about in in, uh, in universities, uh, this that idea of objectivity uh, and detachment and sort of intellectual rigor in the business and and uh, foregoing that for a new kind of politically charged advocacy form of journalism that's also I think been a big trend in academia. Um, and then, uh, you know, you mentioned the kind of uh, dis- dislike for established uh, institutions and-, and traditions in the country. Um, there's an enormous lack of pride in, in our business uh, right now. I mean, I, I think America has actually a-, a pretty tremendous journalistic tradition. It's It's been bad at times about certain stories but we've produced some of the greatest journalists the, the world has ever seen uh, some brilliant stylists and writers and there's just no there's no sense of, of pride in any of those achievements whatsoever there's no sense of tradition in trying to pro, to to continue uh, any of the of that uh, you know of those achievements and they just want to sort of uh, remake everything anew in a, in a new image and it's, uh, I think it's been very negative. It's, it, the, the new business people, when you talk about loathing, there's just a total lack of connection with, this, with these new voices that are coming up. They're, they're not connecting with the public in the same way that the great journal, journalists of our past have.
0: Now then, do you see the role of the sort of thing that we're doing? Uh, you know, there's an amazing appetite for high-quality content, including amongst young people. Uh, I'm constantly amazed at young people who come up to me and say we listen to long-form podcasts because we can't get that sort of range of views and that perspective at our uh, uh, universities or through mainstream media. And they're the two most common you know, reflections, the mainstream media and our universities, our training institutions, wherever we happen to be being educated. How important do you think this, this new role is? And is there a danger that for all the good stuff that's out there, it actually helps people pick their new sources and follow their own sort of ideologies, rather than being challenged, or their own prejudices, rather than being challenged to listen to a diversity of views.
1: Yeah. So on the one hand, I think you're you're right. There's a tr- there's a a tremendous flowering of new um, ideas, content. You know, you mentioned before the the Joe Rogan experience. It's 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 such a cool phenomenon in the states that you have. This guy was sort of a, you know, an ultimate fighter and comedian, and it, it, he he's just got this sort of relaxed, uh, you know, personality-driven approach where he just talks to people of all uh, shapes and sizes and colors and intellectual uh, uh, disciplines, and that's what you don't get on sort of corporate media right now. Like if you if you turn on Fox, you know what you're going to get. It's always going to be the same, pretty much the same thing. Same thing with MSNBC, and it's that. It's that uh, sort of uh, uniformity that turns people off, and there, there's a lot of stuff that's really cool that's going on in that kind of independent, uh, indie, um, you know, alternative space, podcasts, uh, chats, those sorts of things. But you're right; there, there is a problem that with the internet, people can essentially go reality shopping now. They, they design their own news experience. So they, they make up a list of, of voices that they trust and they never go out of that, their comfort zone. And I think that's, that's a bad habit to get into intellectually. Like you, you should always be um, sort of checking in with people that you don't necessarily agree with uh, because otherwise it's very easy to get tunnel vision um, you know, in, in this landscape and just be tuned out to the fact that there are other points of view that even exist. Uh, So I think you're right. That's a big danger.
0: You know, one of the things that I've noticed is even amongst highly intelligent people who read and try and stay observed, simply because I've been involved in public life for a long time, I can usually tell five minutes into a conversation on on public affairs uh, which news services and news streams and information streams people are attaching themselves to. Uh, I'm positive that 25 years ago, it would have been impossible to tell in this country, whether somebody was listening to the public broadcaster, uh, the what's known as the Fairfax stable, or the Murdoch stable in this country, you wouldn't have known because all three gave you a broad overview of what was happening. Now you can pick five minutes into a conversation. And what's extraordinary about it is the incredible sense of righteousness that a lot of people attach to the views that they've absorbed And the view, which seems to reflect the media outlets themselves, that those who dare to differ with that line are somehow lesser, in our case, Australians. This sort of judgmentalism is quite extraordinary. And it seems to me to be directly leading to a breakdown in this thing that you and I, we've been touching on quite a bit now, of trust. And I'd like to come to trust again in a moment. But you can pick very quickly now how people are, if you like, I think the word you used, pursuing their own realities.
1: Yeah, and and again, when I was coming up in the business or in my in my father's day, um, it was considered a major negative to be able to to let the audiences uh, know what your political leanings were. Um, very few people who were kind of straight news reporters; they they didn't really have public profiles as people, Uh, you you didn't really know what they were thinking politically. That was considered a virtue in the business. It was also a kind of a professional necessity. Uh, If you wanted sources to trust you and to give you information, they couldn't know what your political leanings were. You weren't going to get a um, you know a Republican-leaning source to give you information if you if you were, were openly uh, campaigning for the Democratic Party or vice versa. Uh, that kind of ne- neutrality and hiddenness of your point of view was was a, an essential tool uh, of the business. Um, what's happened now is you're exactly right. People are essentially just signaling what they're all about. And it's it's part of, a I think, a commercial strategy that may, may, the networks have uh, employed, where essentially what they're doing is they're picking an audience and they're trying to dominate it by feeding it news that they know that audience is going to agree with. So we say, OK, well, here's we know what you, you believe. We know you agree with X, Y, and Z. Um, we're just going to keep feeding you content that, that uh, sort of uh, reestablishes your opinions um, and uh, tells you that we agree with you. And it creates this kind of conspiratorial relationship between the outlets and the audiences where they're just constantly reaffirming each other's points of view and that it engenders this hostility towards anyone who's outside the bubble, which is part of what the, the, the audience experience is supposed to be about. Uh, it's similar to like uh, to covering sports where everybody's a fan of the same team. And we think that the people who root for the other team are bad people, and those teams are are uh, the the athletes who play for that team are bad. It's the same kind of rooting experience that that uh, that they used to do only in sports, um, and now we do it with politics. But it's much much more vicious, um, you know, and you know, self righteous. Uh, the word you use, I think that's that's correct. Um, To me, it's incredibly off-putting. I don't don't really understand why why that's a a rewarding experience for people, but it is. Uh, It's a a successful strategy, but I think it's very, very dangerous.
0: In in general terms, because you've seen it and the very interesting places that you've lived around the world, can a society really operate properly when, on the one hand, you've got this serious breakdown in trust, on the other side of the coin, and it seems to me they're very closely related. Uh, you have um, this incredible polarization, and in identity politics, it's it's particularly vicious. I think the, the way we're going at the moment. You know, ca- can a cohesive society survive it for very long? I think this is a real problem for the whole of
1: the West. Yeah, y- you can't do it and not expect it to eventually have serious consequences, and and. Uh, In society, I think what we've been doing in this business for uh, decades now is we've been pumping people full of uh, political animosity, uh, agitating them, getting them upset uh, for profit. And, you know, we expect. That that's not going to have blowback and consequences, but of course it's going to. People are eventually, they're going to start really hating each other. You know, it's not going to be just for show. It's not going to be just for entertainment purposes. They're actually going to start hating each other. And, you know, it's not survivable if the official posture of the, the major news outlets in the country um, is that we should hate and dislike one another. Uh, it's, it's just not a tenable situation, especially in a country like the United States, which is heavily armed and has a, you know, a very, very violent, uh, streak running through, uh, you know, our, our society. I think it's, it's been very irresponsible, but it's turned, it's turned especially dark in the last couple of years and people, you know, we, we see situations like families are breaking up people, you know, who are lifelong friends, no longer talk to one another. And I think it has a lot to do with the, with the news media.
0: It's almost uh, a cultural civil war, you know, that that most horrendous war in America where families were divided and brothers were on different sides trying to kill one another. Uh, And and whilst we're not quite reduced to that, although we'll come to the social media in a moment, I'd just like to ask you about how dangerous it can be when we get into cancel culture. But you've got that same sort of deep, passionate divisions, hatred and loathing of people, even within families. And one of our very distinguished former ambassadors to America, Kim Beasley, made the comment that here in Australia, we tend not to be able to understand America very well because we get the East Coast and the West Coast. We get Hollywood and we get New York. We don't get real America, and real America is very different. How do you think real Americans feel, if I can put it that way? Well, they're all, I don't want to imply they're real and unreal Americans. That's not fair, No, I, I get it. But but Americans in the middle, the American in flyover America, how are they feeling about all of this, and where do you think they might seek to go in the future in such a polarized environment?
1: You know, I, I think uh, if you want to use that term, flyover country, uh, it, it, well, there's a is a, a, a huge and obvious divide between kind of blue state America and red state America, and it's it's essentially a difference between the coasts and the middle of the country and urban america and the areas outside the cities right so if you look at how the, how the, the country votes outside the cities it's mostly all red inside the cities it's mostly all blue and the cultural divide is just enormous i mean um, people just again they just don't they don't occupy the same factual universes i, I think it's it's really kind of depressing for me because Um, You know, I've had a lot of, I've covered uh, a lot of different things um, in the United States in the last 20 years or so. And my experience has always been that Americans um, tend to be pretty decent to one another when they're removed from the political discussion. You know, I've seen people, uh, you know, I I covered the Iraq war and I saw people from very different backgrounds uh, getting along, you know, perfectly and cooperate, even though that was a terrible situation or, or hurricane katrina but you get them in a place where they have to start talking about politics and it's it's a it's a death battle now people just do not have any common ground anymore there used to be some um i think we used to get a, there used to be some areas where the sort of upper class cosmopolitan america and and kind of rural middle class america um there, there was some overlap but now it's 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 Basically, two different countries. And I think there's a tremendous amount of resentment out there, um, especially towards kind of upper class, cosmopolitan, um, you know, college educated or more America. That that divide is, is just getting bigger and bigger every day.
0: Can I ask you uh, one of my guests, Warren Farrell, uh, who, who's, uh, you know, staunchly Democrat, uh, when uh, President Biden was. Uh, uh, inaugurated, uh, made the comment uh, to me that the first thing that he felt that Biden should do was to actually do the very thing he didn't do in the end, not roll back very many of Trump's executive orders and so forth, put that to one side for a while and go out and visit the red states, whereas he put it, uh, father, uh, faith, family and fathers still matter. That was the way he put it. Uh, and, and, and sit down as much as possible, do what we would call in Australia a listening tour. And as president, say, I want to reunify the country, what was it that drove you to support President Trump? Why were you so frustrated? Would that have helped? Or do you think perhaps I'm missing something and it's happened? But my impression is it hasn't happened. The new administration seems more determined than ever to um, uh, exacerbate and carry forward the warfare in the expectation that they'll win because they're right. That's the tone of it that you do sort of get a bit.
1: Yeah, and uh, I I think I think you're right. Um, I think that was a major factor in, for instance, why Hillary Clinton didn't win in 2016. In fact, Barack Obama even said that after um, after Hillary lost to Trump, he said, you know, the reason that I won um, was that I went to every little small town in Iowa uh, when I campaigned. And I didn't just go to the places that I knew were going to support me. I went to the other places, too, and I talked to them and i think you know obama there are, there are many things that i, that I criticized about him uh, for when he was president but he did do that he he made a, a conscious effort to at least kind of listen to what was going on in those other parts of the country and he had a tremendous amount of success in these territories that we called like the reagan democrat districts you know people the districts that had been traditionally democratic but they leaned towards reagan in the 80s or bush in the early 2000s he did well there, I think, because he talked to them. That has not been the strategy of Democrats uh, since two thousand and sixteen. There's been really no effort at all to kind of reach out and even understand what's going on in red state America. Uh, it's It's been sort of constant demonization of Trump, which on the on one level I kind of get because it animates their following. but you're basically foregoing, uh, massive amounts of votes. And I also just morally don't think it's the right thing to do. If you're, if you're leading a country, like you have to show that you're interested in being their president too. Um, and that's kind of what hasn't happened now, to be fair, Trump didn't do that whole lot of that either in the other direction, but, um, but he was, he did court voters on the other side. He went after Bernie Sanders voters. Uh, he was very open to the idea that, anybody was welcome to vote for him, which you don't even hear Democrats say. Um, so I think you're right. I think that's a big problem, that there's this, this tone of we're talking to our people and that's it. Uh, the, the, Biden's aides have been openly telling journalists that we've given up trying to get votes across the aisle, that we're going to govern as we see fit from now on, uh, just with the votes that we have. And that's how we're going to do things. I, I, I don't know that that's a good strategy. The, um,
0: the one thing that it does seem both sides of politics in America and uh, presumably a lot of people in the community uh, are unified on is the whole question of the challenge of China. Uh, that uh, does seem to be a unifying factor. Now, there's, a, there's an, a nationalism that is deplorable. In fact, you know most authoritarian regimes deploy it effectively and horribly. Uh, but there's a patriotism that's admirable, concern for your fellow citizens your family, if you like, and their values and the things that bind them together, is it possible that the very real challenges that China now poses uh, and indeed, um, you know, the, the possibility for miscalculation and very serious consequences could in fact provide a a, a uniforming sort of um, uh, spirit for America as they uh, recognise that there are forces uh, at, at large now that don't care very much about America's internal squabbles or Australia's internal squabbles. Uh, they just essentially want to end our, our freedom and our way of life. Do you see that as a potential unifier uh, and and a way forward in a perverse way to ending the terrible differences that are tearing Western
1: cultures apart? So um, Americans have had a, have always had kind of a schizophrenic attitude towards China. Uh, you know, I think if you go back and you read books like *Manufacturing Consent*, you you see that you know for a long time until the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think the, the sort of organizing religion in American society was anti-communism, but it was very it was very oriented towards Russia and the Soviet Union. The the villain in American movies and American pop culture is historically is a, you know, a Slavic or a Russian gangster or, uh, you know, the, the, towards the Chinese, I think Americans have very um, confused feelings. And I think this, this goes back to the 90s when um, when we first started to see like the sort of mass export of the American manufacturing economy. And there was a political divide uh, in America about whether or not we should be aggressive towards china or whether we should open our markets towards china um bill clinton opted to give uh, china most favored nation trading status and that's kind of where politically the status quo in this country has rested ever since and i i think it's been confusing especially kind of for uh traditionally liberal americans who usually prioritize human rights and um And would normally be sort of up in arms about a lot of the things that go on in China, but uh, their political leaders don't act that way. It was similar. I think that was very uh, symbolic when um, there was that whole argument with the NBA when one of the the uh, the owners of the Houston Rockets spoke out against uh, abuses in China, and he was immediately sort of castigated by LeBron James and other. Other famous yep. athletes because the money was coming from China, you know. So that yeah. that's kind of the problem with America. We're very dependent on Chinese money. Um, it's everywhere in our culture, especially in in uh, communications and um, in Hollywood, uh, and in the finance sector. There's tons and tons of Chinese money. Uh, we borrow tons of money from the Chinese, um, and even during the COVID thing. Uh, there hasn't been this kind of rallying of uh, national animosity towards China on the level that you might expect. it's It's been more direct towards Russia even now. Um, so it's possible. there's 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 a history of of us kind of bonding together over things like nine eleven um, when we feel like we're under assault, but that hasn't fully galvanized, yet, I don't think, in this country.
0: Right, It's an interesting perspective and it will be very important to or very interesting to see how it unfolds here in Australia because we are under quite heavy attack at the moment in the media at least from China but in various other ways in terms of interference in politics in business and what have you uh, academia so it's uh, it's quite challenging even chilling i think uh, for us in this country to contemplate what the future might look like and of course in uh, you know, our traditional bonds with the United States are very important. Can we switch gears? Um, what advice would you say, given your very deep commitment to professionalism and objectivity, high standards in journalism, and you plainly see it as critically important, as I do, to the proper functioning of a society, to young people thinking about going into journalism and the media? Uh, we have training schools in Australia where, amongst other things, uh, one of a young student told me, we're, we're just taught that politicians lie and our job is to get the truth out of them. So if you start with that perspective, you know, you've fallen into the great problem of putting, uh, you know, seeing it as a fight between good people and bad people rather than one of, um, you know, decent respect for one another that should only be undone when it's obvious that somebody is being dishonest your starting point's wrong. What what sort of thoughts and advice would you say to young people who think I'd like to be involved in this world and I think it's important? Uh,
1: first of all, it's journalism can be a, a great job. It, it, it uh, can allow you to see the world and allows you to sort of meet fascinating people from a variety of different um, realms and professions and it's intellectually challenging or it can be. Um, but i you can't go into it for the money you can't go into it for friends uh, or your, or um, you know to, to go up the social ladder that's not what this job is all about it's it's about the experience and and you know the the intellectual payoff of tr- of doing a good job and having an impact on society all those things if you go into it for the right reasons it's it's a great thing to do in, ter- in terms of the whole issue of trusting and trusting politicians there's a a proverb that I always uh, liked, which was, um, it's an old Islamic proverb, which is uh, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. Uh, So, you know, you you have to have some belief, but you always have to verify in this business. And you have to start with that. Um, I think one of the problems that we have right now is we have a lot of, we have a lot of journalists who just kind of Report what their sources tell them without checking. Um, and they don't have they don't think for themselves. They let other people push them around. Um, and they don't they don't have any uh, pride about you know making sure that they're not being used or manipulated by by people. Um, you know that's that we're independent. we 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 have a role that's. Uh, that's separate and apart from, from politics. And um, people look up to us to, 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 to stand up for ourselves. So if, if you go into it for those reasons, I think it'll be, it'll be very rewarding.
0: Well, Matt, I must say uh, that, uh, that what I've seen of your own podcasts and so forth, you set a very, very high standard. Your commitment to being fair and objective is palpable and admirable so I, um, I put a plug in uh, for anybody who's listening to mine. Uh, please uh, hop on and listen to Matt and, and, and preferably even go to the YouTube rather than just the podcast and see how he interacts because, uh, Matt, you're a very, very engaging uh, and uh, warm person. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking I wouldn't know how Matt votes
1: um, and <laughs> we'll I don't want to you. know. That's not a good the job. point.
0: He's informing me <laughs> so I can make his objectives, the way he goes about it is to inform so that I can make informed decisions myself. So it's been terrific, but I, I have to ask you this. I mean, in the extraordinary range of the things you've done in your life. How on earth did you get to play basketball <laughs> uh, in Mongolia? And what was it like? Uh,
1: so I was living in Moscow in, I guess it was 1995 or 6, and I was playing a street basketball game at uh, Moscow State University. And one of the guys I was playing with was... Mongolian, and he told me that the that Mongolia had a league, the MBA, the Mongolian Basketball Association, which was the only league in the world that had uh, NBA rules. It was the same three-point shot, same 24-second clock. I I'd played in college in America, so I went into my uh, newspaper the next day. I quit. I jumped on this Trans-Siberian railroad, and I found a team and had a tryout uh, in Ulaanbaatar. And um, it was great. I mean, at the time, Mongolians were really into basketball. It was a little bit like Indiana in the United States. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the level was sort of like mid-collegiate level in, in, in America. But it was, um, it, was, it was really fun and, uh, and kind of a blast. Um, you know, of course, the country was going through some hard times. But it, but there, it, it was a great time. Uh, I wish I had actually stayed longer.
0: Terrific. Matt, you've been very kind with your time. I've been uh, fascinated by what you've had to say, and I, I just absolutely salute that professionalism that you bring to the task. It's really admirable and, and, and a fantastic example uh, for people to uh, try and emulate, I think. So I do warmly congratulate you on it.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mr. Anderson. I appreciate it, and uh, I wish you the best of luck, and thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thank you. All
1: right. Take care now.
0: You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.